If you like what you're hearing on the Security Ledger podcast, consider subscribing to one of our newsletters like The Daily Ledger or The Weekly Ledger. You can learn more and sign up at securityledger.com slash subscribe. This is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast episode number 150... I would even dare to say that in the first three years, I think it would be a, uh, more the exception than the rule in the workplace to have passwords. And I think inside of five years, <laughs> we might be reading about what passwords were and what a nightmare they were <laughs> at that time. And We continue our series on life after passwords as we speak with Nick Buchanan, the chief technology officer of Armor Scientific, who joins us to talk about the imminent demise of the password and what might replace it. But first, Microsoft dominated the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s as a preeminent supplier of desktop and server operating systems and the maker of the most popular office productivity suite, the most popular web browser, email client, you name it. Today, however, the days of the desktop computer are numbered and Microsoft's future, like that of every other technology company, is intimately linked to the cloud, specifically Azure, Microsoft's massive cloud computing platform. But how to get a population of tens of millions of developers used to Windows and Windows applications to now start writing applications and services for the cloud? That's part of the job of our first guest, Tanya Janka, a senior cloud advocate at Microsoft, where Microsoft thrived in the 90s by putting Windows, Office, IE, and Outlook on every desktop and laptop computer while pushing out smaller rivals, the company can't hope to dominate the new era of cloud computing so completely, especially since its chief rival, Amazon, largely invented the space. That requires a different take and a different touch, says Janka. Playing nice with other clouds and other technologies is a first step. A second step is making sure that the complexity of multi-cloud environments doesn't cause customers to accidentally leave data and IT assets exposed. In this conversation, Tanya, an admitted security nerd, and I talk about her work as an Azure evangelist and how to promote security in an age of cloud and DevOps. My name is Tanya Janka, and I am a senior cloud advocate at Microsoft. Tanya, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Cool. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. So I know the first thing my listening audience is going to want to know is what does a cloud advocate, what does a job entail? Talk about that. Uh, so I have a very weird job. <laughs> I started doing public speaking and it turned out I was good at it. And then I was doing it all the time. And I was running a lot of community events and contributing a lot to communities and an open source project. And Microsoft approached me and said, hey, what if that was your job? And then we paid you money to do it. And once they convinced me they weren't messing with me, and that was actually a real job. Because I, I wasn't so convinced at first. I'm like, that's not a job. Shut up. <laughs> um, so I, I create content and then some of it is about their stuff and some of it is agnostic and some of it is about other people's stuff. I speak at conferences. I run a lot of workshops and community events where I teach people how to do things and some of the things are with our stuff and some of the things are with other products and other things. I write content, a lot of content. I help them understand what the community and the industry is asking for, what they need, what problems they're facing, 
And then we try to brainstorm how to be more awesome, essentially. So, you know, a thing you and I were briefly discussing before is multi-cloud strategies. So a trend that we're noticing is that, you know, people are deep in bed with AWS and then they want to, you know, sort of have two clouds. They, they want to have an open cloud relationship. <laughs> <laughs> And so, and so then they want to like couple up with us or GCP or another cl- public cloud. And then they're, how do we secure that? Like a- AWS is huge. They're so huge and they have a huge percentage of the market and they're doing amazing things, but only dealing with one company has a certain amount of risk. And the same with our customers, like deciding to also get, you know, be poly with, um, you know, like do work with GCP or um, with AWS or one of the other clouds. And we want to make sure that that works. And we want to make sure that they don't get owned Mm -hmm. accidentally because, you know, we weren't talking to their cloud nicely or communicating in, you know, the way, like the protocol that they need to listen to us um, or to hear us, I guess I should say, to make sure that identity is managed across the board. And so, so this is a thing like that we talk about a lot now or other things like, oh, you know, zero, zero trust is so cool. How can we do that? And how can we make it you know, easier? How can we make it work better? How can we make it not seem so complex? And, you know, a lot of it is me looking at what customers are asking for, or they implement it in a certain way. I'm like, oh, I never knew you could use it that way that's really cool. Maybe we should make it natively do that mm-hmm. if people want this. And so the idea is, is I try to help communicate on behalf of the community and on behalf of customers that for whatever reason aren't necessarily talking like directly to their rep that they have. Because sometimes we can't always hear the same things. Does that make sense? When you yeah. have a conversation with some time, someone, sometimes you just hear they're complaining and angry and sometimes someone else will hear, oh, yeah, I see why they're ticked off and we should fix that. One of those critical communication roles within technology companies, right? Translation. Yes, yes. Translation from nerd to management Yeah. or, you know, executives to implementers. It's always nice when your passion, when you find out that you can do things that you're passionate about and doing for free, uh, but get paid to do them, right? I know. I know it's a dream. Did you think Microsoft was like scamming you? Like it was like a timeshare thing at first where like (laughs) they were going to lure you with this and then talk to you about their cloud and you just have to sit there and listen to it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Once they convinced me, then they flew me down to Seattle and I got to meet Jesse Frizzell and Ashley McNamara, who I admire. I'm fan. Right. And I was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> you want me to work with them? Yeah, it was pretty, yeah. it was pretty cool. It was very smart. It was very smart. <laughs> and your background is, is in development before you came on board, Microsoft. What what types of things were you working on? You mentioned you're you doing some open source projects. And I mean, what was your, um, what's your kind of origin story and, and how you came to be um, a subject matter expert really um, in cloud computing? I actually started off as a software developer. I did that for a really long time. I did, you know, like Linux backend types of systems. And um, I did a bit of sysadmining, but mostly I just made a ton of software. I worked for the Canadian government for a really long time. And then I got bit by the security bug. By that, I mean, I met an ethical hacker and 
I'd been with senior tech for about a decade at that point where, you know, I was always leading all of the dev teams to do this or that. And they kept trying to push me into management and management stresses me out and makes me unhappy. Uh, so I would always just like push back. <laughs> Welcome to the uh, club. <laughs> like, yeah, well, they just kept trying to promote me and I was like, no. <laughs> um, and so then I was like, well, maybe what I need to do is just like try a new technical challenge, if that makes sense. So I started learning how to do ethical hacking and you know web app penetration testing. And then I started specializing in application security, which I feel is sort of like a dance in between the security team and the developer team, you know, teaching them about how to do better, helping them learn new tools, providing tools, you know, not just doing security testing, but okay, so everyone in our department appears to be allergic to security headers. <laughs> so let's talk about it and let's set some standards about what we expect and let's make, you know, code templates so everyone can just copy and paste and, other, other things to just try to enable us to end up with more secure apps. And then, then I started doing public speaking and I used to be a professional musician for a really long time. Uh-huh. So I've been on, yeah. Performer. I've been on, You're a performer. Yes. Go ahead. Yeah. I've been on stage my whole adult life from the moment I was illegal. So when I started public speaking after the first couple of times where I thought I might die, <laughs> My first conference, my demo failed. It was it really, really, really failed. It turned out someone else had hacked the site beyond recognition like a few hours before my talk, and I had no idea, and it just wouldn't work. And um, I learned a lot of valuable lessons. But the point is, is then uh, it turned out I was good at public speaking. Then I started writing, and I joined... I joined OWASP, the Open Web Application Security Project, years ago, and I became a chapter leader immediately in my city. But then I joined a project. I started a project with my friend Nicole Becker because, you know, she's like, what's up with this DevOps stuff? Like, how do you hack that? You know, what what new ways do we need to do penetration testing? And so she made a vulnerable app, and then I made this huge pipeline, and we invited a bunch of other friends to join us. And so we have a bunch of weird different pipelines where we automate different security things. And yeah, um, then we started a show. So we have this streaming online show and then we cut videos to uh, YouTube where it's, it's things like, okay, so I tried out the, you know, the other day I tried out Sonar Cloud and it's just me like, this is how you install it. This is, you know, how it runs and, this is how long it takes, but then, you know, this is what you get. You know, this is how you go get the report. This is how you sign up. Yeah. If it's, if it costs something or not, because I find it personally really frustrating to talk to salespeople. Um, I know they're doing their job. I understand that, but it makes me crazy. So I would always rather just play with something myself. Um, And so people being able to watch a video of me, like, okay, so I installed, I installed some sneak, I think in six minutes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. And then there was another tool. There's a couple tools where just like session after session after session, it just wouldn't work. It was, it was impossible and the directions were wrong. Um, so I'll write the companies and I'll tell them, I'm like, yo, this is not working and I'll, I'll get support and I'll try to like help them fix it. But yes, you know, the idea being, you know, everyone in our industry can benefit yes. then. Um, and also, I just like, I just love playing with stuff. 
one of the things that we've talked about a lot on the Security Ledger podcast is this challenge. So many of the security tools that are out there were really designed to secure, you know, more kind of traditional enterprise environments. And increasingly, companies are moving to cloud-native applications, yeah. cloud-native workloads. How do you see uh, customers balancing that, both sec- managing both their their cloud-native applications and, and workloads and also the stuff that they're continuing to run and rely on that might be on-prem? So there's, there's a few things here. Um, so one change I see is that the perimeter is no longer the perimeter and it's not like a bunch of firewalls. Now it's identity. So a lot of places are implementing zero trust types of ideas and basing everything off of identity. So don't, so you have a server, you know, like let's, let's say you have like, you have a a general like old school style. So you have like a web app and it talks to a database and that's it. You don't even have end tier. You just have two tier and that's it. Oh, and then there's like, you know, like a web balancer out front. Okay, great. So then that database should only, only, only ever be able to be contacted from that app and from database administrators. That's it. So it should have zero trust, right? So you should have a service account. So an account that is like recognized as an identity, but for an application that can contact it. Um, We call them service principles in Azure, but then it should also have... um, you know, the DBA specifically, that team that has that role just for that database. So again, like if I'm a software developer on that team, I shouldn't be able to talk directly to the database and administer it, right? Maybe I should have read privileges or query privileges, but I should not have database owner. And so managing that with roles and then not necessarily having a firewall because every single port is closed all the time. Um, we are calling it just-in-time access control. I know other clouds are currently adopting it where you have all of your all of your ports are closed all the time and then you only open it for a very short period of time while you do your administration. So there'd be a port open in between those two, but it would have identity and it would have a tunnel and all of that, right? So this is a, a really new way of thinking about how we would do things. Like usually we're like, oh, but we have a hundred firewalls around it. And it's like, well, identity is um, if you get it right, it's so much better. And you just, by default, you don't have access to anything, right? Like I make that database and it, you know, I make the service account, not a Tanya account, right? Not the developer having her name or his name there because that's what a lot of developers do, right? They put their own credentials, they quit and then everything's broken. No, 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 no. (laughs) Um, and, And things like as well, like, you know, keeping your secrets in a secret store. There's just so much bad practice out there. You know, there's just oh. so much sloppy stuff. <laughs> I did every bad thing a developer did, and I did it so proudly because I did not know better. I would, you know, like have the connection string in the code and have it commented out, and it would be like, this one's prod, this one's dev. <laughs> 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 and, and, and then the first time I went to use a secret store, you know what I did? I did the bad thing where I'm like, okay, so like identity. Tanya Janka will do, and and then I'm like, oh wait, no, putting on my security hat. Wait, no. Instead, you know, I was doing it for my open source project OWASP DevSlop, so I name everything DevSlop. So I'm like, oh wait, I need a service principle. I need, you know, 
a service account, not a person's account, but like an applicant. And so now I have an account that goes, gets my secrets, puts them, you know, talks to the database, opens the database for the app, closes it all back up after. And I am not involved. So if I quit, then that means someone else would still be like the app will still run. Right. So there's, there's a lot of, a lot of things. I think some of the biggest problems though, around moving to cloud is that they're not, they're trying to do two identity management systems instead of one. I definitely feel that, you know, if you're in a company, you should have one identity system, unless you have, um, you know, a completely separate test environment that is you know, open to the public or for whatever reason, like if you have a real business requirement, but generally if you're doing hybrid, most customers do that, right? Like they start, you know, traditional data center, and then they're going to try one app in the cloud. I strongly suggest making that your proof of concept and putting all your security around that and seeing what works and making sure everything's cool, then porting Mm -hmm. more apps, right? And continue on as opposed to just like, we're going to move everything tomorrow. (laughs) That could go poorly. (laughs) So one of the things, um, so so you you write a lot, and in fact, you know, for for listeners, and we'll link to this, uh, Tanya as well. You do a lot of writing on Medium, on, on She Hacks Purple, is your uh, byline uh, handle, I guess. Okay. It's both. <laughs> it's yeah. both your byline and your handle. So you write a lot about um, shifting left. You have this whole series called Shifting Left Like a Boss, which I love, where you talk about um, about the need to insert, you know, security conversations and security thinking much earlier in a development process, right, and design process. Um, so talk, talk a little bit about, and, you, and you've got a whole series of blog posts on Shifting Left Like a Boss, um, mm-hmm. but, but talk about generally, and, and I know one of the things you've talked about is just the absence or the paucity of security education in developer, you know, as, as developers are kind of coming up, whether it's in, in college or, or even in the workforce, just there's not a lot of focus on security as we train new application developers. But talk about what you think some of the big um, lessons are out there in this in this process of shifting left that application developers really need to start you know, learning and and getting their arms around? I think everyone in IT should have a little mini course at work about what the security team expects from them. This is a thing that I started a few years ago where, you know, I met with the sysadmins and talked to them like, this is what I need from you. And I explained like, I can't do it without you. So I met with developers and I talked with them. I'm like, okay, from now on, you know, when we do a project, there's certain security requirements that I need for every new project. Like I want us to be HTTPS only, or if we're going to do a file upload, like I have some requirements around that. And if we're not going to do one, great. But if we are going to do one, like I have a page I need you to read. And adding security activities or a security focus into the different phases of the system development lifecycle Like that's the idea of pushing left, you know, starting security at the beginning and doing it the whole way through. Um, But I went to school a long time ago. Um, I graduated in, you know, January of 2001, right when the tech bubble burst. Yay. Everybody scramble. (laughs) I know I've been working in tech for years already. And then I got basically laid off right before I finished school and then was out of work for a few months. But anyway, the point is, is, 
um, there was no security course whatsoever. And I'm talking to students now and they'll say, oh yeah, we had a course about identity and managing roles, which is super important. That is an important concept. I need them to know. But none of them learned about input validation. None of them learned about, you know, why you would output and code something. None of them learned about what threats or risks might exist. Like I used to program all sorts of things into my app so that it would be easier for me to administer it from home or, or make sure that the rest of my team knew stuff or we could just like, oh yeah, don't worry, I'll decrypt your password and email it back to you because I felt I was providing excellent customer service. Like this was years and years ago, but like software developers, they just want to make awesome, awesome software and they want their customers to think their software is awesome. So whatever they can do to make it better, right? And they just didn't understand that there were risks there. Mm -hmm. So I've been working with the Canadian government the past year to try to add security to the curriculum. Um, I helped a little bit. I'm going to continue my efforts. There's a bunch of different activities that they do. And I managed to help them find, I think, 43 different security people across Canada to go in for a day and teach all the students like a really basic one-day security lesson which is really cool. Um, they do all sorts of really cool stuff, but I think that it needs to be a formalized part of every computer science program. I think when we teach hello world, the very first thing that we do, right? We teach them to put hello world on the screen. Mm-hmm. The next thing we teach them to do is take input. That's the next lesson sure. always. Yeah. And we don't even talk about risks or threats. That's the number one risk and threat is your user putting something into your app that you were not expecting. Sure. So this could be a perfect lesson. So you get the data in and then you talk about, okay, so what if, what if this user was a jerk, right? Like what, what jerk things could a user do? Oh, maybe they'll put in like a thousand characters. That's not good. What happens then? Right. And that could be, that could turn into like a key lesson about what security is. And hopefully for some students, become a fascination that turns into a career, right? Like I didn't even know that, honestly, I thought security teams um, were just grouches that said no a lot (laughs) because that had been my experience with it before I discovered OWASP and that there were so many different flavors and areas of security that really could be a rabbit hole that I would love to dive down yeah. into. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I think uh, software design and and computer science are, are really engineering disciplines. And I think folks tend to think about them in engineering terms. And I remember we had Chris Rice-Opel uh, on the podcast recently talking about, um, literally talking about re- reporting the first buffer overflow vulnerability in Microsoft back in the sort of mid-1990s when he was with, with Loft. And um, and sort of needing to explain to them what that was. He'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we get it. It's a crash bug. And he's like, no, 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 it's not a crash bug. Like, you, you know, it, it does crash application, but that's actually not the biggest problem. You know, the biggest problem is that you can, you know, run arbitrary code on the system as after that, you know. And they're sort of like, wait, what? You know, and it, it was just sort of, it's a way of framing it of like, okay, the, the biggest problem is not that your application doesn't work. You know, the biggest problem is, you know, data integrity or the integrity of the system itself or, or what actually might you be able to do in the physical world these days as a result of taking control of that software right um and it's like it's sort of it's stepping back and framing it in a different way as as the as the engineer creating the software 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Once the first time I saw a buffer overflow, oh my gosh. <laughs> my yeah. eyes just lit up. And the first time I remember the first time I saw an SQL injection, the guy said, I'm gonna get into your app without a password. I'm gonna and it's gonna take one minute. The reason why it's gonna take so long is because I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> and I was oh, he had me hooked. Hook, line, and sinker. It was too late for me. I was like, I must know how to do this. And I must know how to make sure this never happens to one of my apps ever. I must know everything about this because I want to create, you know, the best app. One of the, one of the promises of, 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 you know, moving to cloud platforms, whether it's Azure or, or AWS or something else is, um, first of all, that mm-hmm. big, Sophisticated companies are running the underlying infrastructure, so so there's actually a lot of uh, attention and resources putting put to securing that. Are there ways that your cloud provider, I guess for our audience, or your cloud provider, and, and let's take Microsoft Azure because that's where you work, can actually kind of help mm-hmm. you through this process, or is it really just a matter that companies have to handle by themselves, kind of bring up their their sophistication level, you know, hire internal testers and developers or, but can you, can you look to a company like Microsoft or AWS to actually help, you know, guru you through some of this? So this part is one of those where I only know the answer for Microsoft on this one. And um, so I want to preface my answer with AWS or GCP may have offerings of this. I'm just unaware of them, and that does not mean they don't exist. Um, So uh, Azure has this thing called Azure Security Center. It's the big dashboard, and and I work with that team a lot. They're amazing. And uh, I went to visit them maybe a year ago in Israel, and, uh, and I went through all the things with them, and they have these things called recommendations. And one of the recommendations was you know, you have cores, you know, other, you know, other resources and scripts that your app can call set to star. That's not advisable. Uh, just for the record, never do that. Okay. You know, taking my rant hat <laughs> off. Um, <laughs> but, but I told them that I loved that and that the community loved that because you could all of a sudden see all of your apps and which ones had it set like that rather than having to go dig through the code and see. And for the security team, this was amazing because we could immediately see a great big AppSec hole. So since then, they have added a ton of AppSec advice. So, you know, like you're using this old version of Node.js, you should upgrade when you have time. Or, um, of course, all of a sudden I'm blanking on a bunch of their AppSec advice, but they, they have a ton of things. Oh, you know, you have this function uh, that's being called over HTTP instead of HTTPS. This is, you know, not industry sure. standard. And, and so they have like all of this monitoring set up now and it's telling you things. And then they launched this thing called threat protection, data threat protection. Wait, 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 no, no. Advanced data protection. Sorry, they, they changed the name of it. So advanced data protection. And it's a thing that you can flip on and it's $15 um, for your server, for your database server per month. And then it will tell you, you look vulnerable to SQL injection like that. That's not cool. And this is the problem. Or you have this set to database owner, or you aren't using a service account to access this. Instead, you're using a personal account and we don't advise that. And it will actually, um, it can block SQL injection 
attacks or it can alert you. And I told my team I was turning it on. You know, I gave them a heads up. And then my poor friend, Anthony Chu, he was on stage and he didn't really think anything of it. And then he was doing a demo where he did an SQL injection and then it blocked him. And he's like, wait, no, this demo works. And then Azure just like started, you know, blocking him. And then his phone rings on stage and it's Azure telling him. And he's like, you ruined my demo. I'm like, are you kidding? Your demo was amazing. Um, We're still friends just for the record. Um, But but that wasn't, uh, I I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. They also have like a thing now that will scan to see if you have credentials in your code called CredScan. And I had CredScan tell on me to my manager because I had on purpose put in a username password in my connection string in plain text as a lesson for the OSF project, right? Um, And I wanted to see it get picked up and it wasn't real. And my manager, so of course Azure's like, no, 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 I can see what you're doing, no. And I went through all the warnings and it was like, it was really intense to try to get past it because it could tell what was happening. So then it told on me to my boss and my boss wrote me like one second later, Janka, what are you doing? And I explained and then he thought it was super funny. He's like, haha, Azure's angry with you. And then because he didn't take action, the security team, the instant response, I guess it triggered an incident. And like six minutes later, I get this call and they're not impressed. It's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of, um, on the one hand, you know, you can see developers kind of be like, oh, it's like big brother. And like, you know, I know what I'm doing and like this cloud, you know, this, this kind of AI or machine learning that's kind of built into this platform is, is just introducing friction. Mm-hmm. It's slowing me down and, and so on. So you can sort of see that reaction. On the other hand, um, you know, the, the, the potential is there to pick a lot of low-hanging fruit. And as we know, just from reading the headlines, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit to be picked out there in the in the cloud security world. Um, you've been a developer, you know, you've worked in a bunch of different contexts. I mean, what do you see long-term the impact of those types of automated security scanning and analysis features being? I think that the more boring stuff that we can automate, the better. Isn't, isn't that the Python tagline, like automate yes. the boring stuff? <laughs> right, right. Right? So, so I I don't want to sit there and run Nessus manually. I had a job once where I did that. It didn't last very long. And my job was just to show up, run Nessus, and then print a report, basically. And I don't, like, Nessus is an amazing tool. I love it. It's awesome. It kicks butt. It made me look very smart. But I don't want to sit there and manually run it all the time. That's so dull. I want to automate that. I want to automate vulnerability assessment scans. I want to like every single thing that I can automate, every single thing that I can take off the lap or like the desk of software developer from a security perspective so that they can just concentrate on making kick-ass applications. Like that's what I want to do, right? And I think that over time, we're going to get better at this. I am hoping I am really hoping that we are going to have more standards of how we do things. There's this group trying to make something called Service Mesh and all APIs would run through it. And you would have to follow a specific protocol because part of the problems with API security is that one, none of them are documented. And two, a lot of them are using poetic yes. license. Sure. The protocol. Yeah. And that is, where, that is where security vulnerabilities love to play. Um, you know, if you go into an... Uh, an unknown state, that is the magic for every 
hacker who or bug bounty or security researcher that is that is their joy right is finding the state where things things go and you don't know what's going to happen and if we all followed protocols if we had standards if we had you know the service mesh that we have to run our stuff through um, life would be so much better I also think scanning tools are getting better but certain things you just need a, a human brain right. for um, it it can be hard to tell, oh, the combination of this, this, and this makes for a cra- catastrophic risk. That's not necessarily something a computer yes. can understand. A human can. But if I can take all the other boring work off of that human to ensure that they have time to put one and two and three together to find that catastrophic risk, that's what that's what I want. I would, I would really love people to check out um, my YouTube channels. So I have... For she hacks purple, and then I have one with the OWASP DevSlop team. So if you look up either of those, you will find us. And I've been making, you know, I've been writing a lot, but I've also been making a ton of videos where it's more hands-on. So if rather than like reading the theory of security headers, you want to see me like just do a bunch of code or see me smash things. I love not. <laughs> I, I like implementing new tools, but I also like beating things up. Um, you know, people could check out my videos on YouTube and I would just love to hear feedback like, oh, you know, you, you haven't covered this tool. That tool looks cool. Or, you know, I'm really curious about this. Are you thinking about potentially, you know, looking into that? I, I don't know. I want to learn everything. And so I love hearing other. Hey, Tanya Janka, thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, my gosh. Thanks for having me. Tanya Janka is a senior cloud advocate at Microsoft. She was here talking about security on Microsoft's Azure platform. Up next, as much as people complain about the weak security offered by alphanumeric passwords, they're still plenty popular. Possibly that's because so many otherwise unsophisticated technology users are familiar with them and because they're easy to use. After all, the last 10 years has brought an explosion of password alternatives into common use. Fingerprint biometrics, face biometrics, hard second factors, soft second factors, and so on. Each new layer of authentication, in theory, adds to the security of your system, raising the bar for attackers, but it also adds work and complexity for your users that, in turn, can hamper their productivity, or even worse, drive them to look for shortcuts. In our second segment this week, we continue our series, Life After the Password, by speaking with Nick Buchanan, the chief technology officer of Armor Scientific, which emerged from stealth mode in March with a product called Air Armor, a wearable digital identity token that includes fingerprint biometrics and ultra-low power GPS tracking. In this conversation, Nick and I talk about the challenge of balancing strong authentication with user experience and about the imminent demise of the alphanumeric password. I am Nicholas Buchanan. I'm the Chief Technology Officer for Armor Scientific. So welcome to the Security Ledger podcast, Nick. Oh, thank you. For those of in our audience who don't know about Armor Scientific, tell us a little bit about what you guys do. We provide a new form or a, a new method of authentication for all the methods of access. Uh, we call it universal access control. And uh, with a single device or a single token, if you will, you'll be able to log into anything from a workstation, a tablet or a phone, or even an application that you might get on, on the internet at large or a business application that uh, you might be interacting with at your place of business. That also includes how we physically access the business. So we try and take a full system approach 
and leave no stone unturned for how we manage identity and how we manage access to resources and people within that organization. Okay. And we're having you on as part of our ongoing series of Life After Passwords, The Future of Authentication. And this is basically, um, this is right in the wheelhouse for you. This is what you all do. Talk, uh, Nick, just a little bit about sort of the use cases that um, come to you there at Armor. What is the pain point that brings customers to your doorstep? Well, that's where we're a little bit uh, uh, different. Um, where we started was in situations where it was high risk, high, high consequence, um, specifically around law enforcement. And uh, the problem that uh, we were attempting to solve was the time necessary for an officer to look up information while he's in the car, while he may have a suspect uh, in custody or might otherwise not have his attention on what's going on and is more dealing with the technology. And uh, the more we got into it and the number of regulations that were required, it was clear that there was a liability and a problem that we needed to solve. And once we um, uh, were able to clearly define how we we're going to do that for law enforcement, we started to see applications in healthcare, in uh, finance, and it kind of snowballed from there. So we started with, you know, how do we make the most uh, reliable uh, experience, the most expeditious experience that allows that individual to more expediently do what they're there to do? There's not a lot of financial gain in having employees who are really good at authentication. You know, that's not a competitive differentiator. Uh, it's more of a cost of doing business. So if we can eliminate those barriers to access and allow people to get information uh, more quickly, that has uh, consequences, not just for those high risk situations, but just for uh, everyday usability. I just think about my own experience just to do some mobile banking or even interact with a few websites. I'm constantly challenged. And uh, every time I give out my password, I'm literally seeding the world with, <laughs> with opportunities to compromise my identity. So we saw this as a fundamental uh, need to, to change, and especially considering the nature of the information that they deal with, that we couldn't leave it as good enough. It had to be uh, complete. With the uh, Armor system, how are people authenticating? I know that you support a variety of different second factor tokens. Um, how do they work practically? We've had for a long time many different forms of second factor. and Maybe the one most people are familiar with, if you're thinking historically, is those uh, tokens have the rotating key on them. And you have to type it in at the right uh, order and time, and then that would be your second factor. That would be your something you have. But, you know, as we add these new technologies, like an SMS text message and so on and so forth, we're kind of just layering on different methodologies for doing the same thing. The belief is that if you layer on enough of them, it'll be too hard for us to uh, uh, access the systems. But the reality is that, you know, folks that are trying to attack are going to work around those. So we said, hey, you know, how do we bring this concept of having something you have, but make it far more consumable and easier for the end user to use? And how do we make it in such a way that we get out of the way of this authentication process? How do we get the token to do the work rather than the individual? Um, and that's where we came up with Air Armor, which is a wireless biometric uh, remote authenticator. Uh, works like a, a fingerprint reader, a proof of life sensor on it. And uh, that stands in place of your password. It can be the one thing you use to authenticate everything. Or you could use it in a more traditional sense, like uh, step-up authentication for MFA, if you have to rely still on passwords. Okay. And uh, what types of uh, biometrics are you uh, able to integrate or track with this AirMobile product? The token itself has a biometric reader, but we also have a, a client that sits on your phone that can consume the biometric capabilities of that device, subject to the rules of the organization you're dealing with. 
And this is where they could take advantage of things like uh, face ID or if they've got a fingerprint sensor on their phone and they can use it much the same way they have uh, for a physical token. Um, for us, we envision the token being uh, for uh, when uh, you have a chicken and egg problem where you don't, uh, where, you know, the primary method of access is the device you have in your hand and you have to authenticate independently. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about NSA and if somebody has your phone and they're trying to log into your stuff and you get an SMS text message, it doesn't make sense because it's the same device, right? It's not something additional. Right. Whereas with something that's independent of that device, it means that there's always something that is something you have. And because it's electronic, we can keep a session on the token and then using your endpoint, single sign you on various different properties, even if they don't natively support it. Um, and that's really the special uh, bit that sets us apart is uh, getting the user community benefiting from these technologies in a way that's not only more aggressive from a compliance standpoint, but it's all happening behind the covers. So to the perception of the end user is just, wow, things just get easier and easier. Well, at the same time, you know, the GRC uh, team has everything locked up tight with their T's crossed and your I's dotted. What, what are the obstacles to moving away from, um, you know, single factor username and password it, it, right now? Because it, it is something where folks have been talking about the the fact that these are not secure, that we, we need to abandon these, you know, username, password regimes and, and move to things that, like you said, are more transparent, more secure, more um, reliable. Um, and yet, you know, year after year goes by and we don't seem to be making any noticeable progress in that direction. So as you see it, what are some of the obstacles to get, actually getting rid of and letting go of the username and password? Well, I see one of those is just being an industry obstacle, and I don't think it's very difficult to overcome. I think that we as an industry have somewhat done a disfavor in that there's a ton of product out there that does identity, that does antivirus, you know, and they really just pick and uh, choose a little bit at a time, you know, little pieces to the security puzzle. As uh, an industry expected uh, our customers to hire these experts to rope you know, what we created together to help defend against a trained attacker. You know, it's not a really, you know, if you had to sit down and do it from scratch, you know, you probably, given all that information up front, you probably wouldn't design it the way that we have. So I think it's definitely, um, we're at the point where we need to make that change. And uh, the biggest barrier is uh, acceptance. I think we're at the point of frustration enough to where the level of service uh, that, you know, that we've come to expect from like your Amazons and whatnot, we want that in the workplace. And that really comes down to it. It's like, you know what? If I can get a $35 heater to my exact specification on my doorstep inside of 24 <laughs> hours, why can't I do basic block and tackle things at work? Why does it take three days to get a signature on a piece of paper? And a lot of it is because all these artificial barriers, which are meant to protect us, that are in fact harming us because it retards our productivity. So we've had the FIDO Alliance on this show to talk about their work around federating identity. Um, is that is FIDO Alliance something you guys are a part of or, or aspire to be part of? Um, are there or are there other um, standards uh, or, uh, or cross cross industry groups that uh, might help um, smooth uh, the transition to this new you know post password? Uh, um, reality. Yes, I think FIDO has been a fantastic uh, innovation. We've uh, been working with FIDO for some time, uh, actually some of the first uh, uh, technology previews on Chrome, 
And I think it's only recently that uh, now that we've got uh, broader applicability across the different uh, web browsers that uh, Fido has the opportunity now to become ubiquitous. I think the the biggest uh, uh, push would be getting the uh, full-fledged and full-throated support from the finance community and the regulatory community. That's always a challenge. But as uh, you know, these technologies become more and more common and uh, more applicable, uh, the more often you're going to see it supported. And uh, you know, we envision a world where you'll have a authenticator token, which represents you, but it's the one thing that you use across all the professional entities mm-hmm. you deal with, either in your personal life, like your bank, or your professional life, like your job. You know, having different, uh, being a different person to each one doesn't really make a lot of sense. Um, and we see FIDO as a fundamental step towards that, but not an end step. So when you know, we looked at it from a product perspective, uh, we needed something that was going to be, okay, this is a FIDO today, but what's it going to be three years mm-hmm. down the road? And we needed to have a framework to keep pace with those changes. And that was also a big thing that, uh, a big problem we're trying to solve just even with our customer base is that the regulatory climate can change from one administration to the next. You don't say. <laughs> exactly. So imagine for a moment, right? I mean, year investment i bought my 25 security products and all of a sudden the regulatory climate changed none of them are at least a some section of them and i'm going to market again yeah. it's like no wonder the security market is as big as yeah. it is right <laughs> so by putting a platform that could keep pace with the change in regulations and that you could publish the change uh made a lot of sense to us and that's something that you know really hasn't existed in the marketplace uh and it's because it's always been uh a infrastructure centric problem or uh, attack from that thing. Like, how do we make passwords for Linux better? Well, that's good, but it's not, you know, the encompassing, uh, all-encompassing problem, right? There's uh, there's uh, Linux on the desktop, there's the command line, there's, uh, there's Windows, there's all these different forms of access. And if you don't have a platform that can adequately address all of them, then you never really have a full picture of what's going on. You know, you're always looking at, uh, you know, maybe you have the Mona Lisa, but it's really hard to appreciate it when you can only look at it at one square inch at a time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You can never really appreciate what it is because you don't get that opportunity to step back and look at it in the whole. And when you've got 25 different products with 25 different <laughs> consoles to look at, you know, you're pretty much leaving it up to educated guess as to whether or not this posture you have is the correct one on a small one inch we talk here on the uh, on this series of you know life after passwords as if you know this is kind of future future tech talk but um it it isn't really but i would ask you um, how how far away uh, measured in years are, are we from uh, a world in which most uh, workers most professionals are are no longer asked to uh, enter a username and password where uh, the message is going to be you know don't worry about it you don't need a password anymore we're we're authenticating you other ways you know, uh, that's going to happen here in the next three to five years. Um, the scary thing is the technology exists today. Um, now it's a matter of execution by the industry to get it in the hands of consumers. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't I would even dare to say that in the first three years, I think it would be a uh, more the exception than the rule in the workplace to have passwords. And I think inside of five years, <laughs> we might be reading about what passwords were and what a nightmare they were <laughs> at that time. And how did we ever get to this point? <laughs> So, you know, tales around the campfire of uh, how we used to authenticate. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's the uh, it's the uh, stone tablets of the modern uh, age. 
Right. You know, and, and, and they really are. If you look about, back at it, right? I mean, this is something that was conceived in the 70s, right? When the internet wasn't even really <laughs> thought of or anything like that, right? We're talking about something that a bunch of guys at Bell Labs had come up with. And, you know, we really haven't addressed the problem. Um, and I'm really happy now that uh, the industry at large is getting serious about it. And it's going to be really exciting. And where can people find uh, you and Armor Scientific? Absolutely. Please find us at uh, Um, Or if you want to join our uh, email list, please email us at info at armorsci.com. Uh, and uh, you can keep up to date on our mission to remove passwords from the workplace. Nick Buchanan, Chief Technology Officer at Armor Scientific. Thank you so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you so much. appreciate it. Nick Buchanan is the Chief Technology Officer at Armor Scientific.